Well, it is good to be here with you all this morning. Uh, it's a delight to, to be here uh, preaching to you all uh, in lieu of your beloved pastor, who is actually at uh, Chehalem Valley right now preaching also. Uh, but uh, I want to bring our greetings from your brothers and sisters at you know, the, uh, your fellow congregation at Chehalem Valley, just over the mountain. And I've been there for a couple months now. And it is a been a great joy, I know, for myself to, to be there uh, and to also to get to know uh, some of you. I know some of your, uh, not only Pastor Eric, but also Joe, getting to know Joe as well. But this morning, though, we're going to read and uh, hear God's word from Philippians 3, verses 1 through 11. Uh, before uh, I read, let me pray for us that God would uh, bless the reading and the preaching of his word in this time. Lord God, We come before you here and we need to hear what your word has to say to us. We hear other words all throughout the week, words that want to distract us, words that want to tell us things uh, that that the world or others insist that is true, or even words that come from our very hearts that want to um, tell us what we think is true. And and Lord, we need to come back again and hear what you plainly have to to say to us. Uh, This is life for us. And so as you have always spoken and had things happen, would you also speak yet again this morning and have things happen by the power of your word, by the power of your spirit working through it? We pray that as we we come away from here this morning, that Jesus would not only be more beautiful, but more believable than he was before. And forgive the sins of the one who's preaching here because you know that there are many. In Jesus' name, amen. This is the word of God from Philippians 3, verses 1 through 11. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews as to the law of Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Amen. Technological devices come with a default setting on them. Your phone, your TV, 
uh, your computer of whatever type it is or whatever operating system is your own personal flavor there. They all have a default setting, the setting that they come pre-programmed with. And no matter how much that you mess it up, you can always reset it back to the factory settings. But your phone, though, isn't the only thing that has a, a default setting. So do you. All of us have a default, though we're all individuals with our own characteristics and our own backgrounds and our own personality traits. Every person has the same default, which we all come pre-programmed with and that we all want to fall back on. And that default setting is to live by works. Some sort of adherence to a works principle. It's the default way that we operate. And so what do I mean by, by that default of works? What does it mean for that to be our default setting, to be works-oriented? It's not only our drive to performance, but that we must perform according to a certain standard to be accepted in some way. More than just taking pride in performing well or more than just seeking excellence, it's making that as being the narrative which forms our sense of approval. And that self-justification then, which becomes, or which becomes the principle that controls our lives. It's the endless quest of seeking to be enough. To measure up in the eyes of the world and, or to seek uh, some principle, either man-made, self-imposed, or even divine. And the sense of dissatisfaction that we have when, when we fail, it gives us away. When we don't perform as well as we thought that we ought to, and then we subsequently feel worthless or ashamed or like we don't belong. But it's also the default for our relationship with God a lot of times. And it kind of goes like this. We think that my approval by God or the degree that, uh, to which God approves of me is formed by my performance. And that acceptance from him is tied in part to what I do, either wholesale or maybe even just in part as he starts the process by loving me, but then I have to bring it out to completion in some way. But here's the thing with this. Living in this way is exhausting. You know what I'm talking about? You ever felt that? You felt that exhaustion when you're trying to live for God's approval there? Because the pursuit out of the sense of trying to measure up and gain acceptance, it sucks all the joy of living in that relationship, that beautiful relationship that we're given by grace uh, with Jesus Christ. And instead, though, we are left on an endless treadmill going after an end of what seems like we will never, ever reach. When is my enoughness truly enough to bring to an end this searching for approval and acceptance and self-justification? Well, the Apostle Paul writes in verse 1 to rejoice. And he can write that because his message consistently throughout all of his writings is not one about the treadmill of works, but it's the comfort of grace and faith. Paul's all about grace. And that comes from a man who personally knew grace, a man who calls himself the chief of sinners. This man could also bask in the grace and mercy of God that was shown to him by, by Jesus Christ, of the, the one who he had even opposed in his previous life. 
And so even though Paul is all about grace, though, Paul knows about the human default. And he knew how easy it was for us to slip back into that default of works even after we've experienced grace. Right? We love grace, but we still feel those pulls back towards works sometimes. But here in our passage, as he's writing to the, the church in Philippi, a church who understood and church who loved grace, he warns them to beware of those who would teach otherwise in verse 2. He says, look out for the dogs, for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. And we'll get to that in a moment here. But why, though, would he take the time to warn this grace-loving church to watch out for those who wanted to mix works along with grace? Because it's easy for us to unconsciously slip back into our defaults. And so Paul issues this warning then to look out for them because he wants his readers, just like he wants us as we are here listening, as we read this too, he wants them and us to live in joy and freedom and not to shift back into this default and wearisome life according to works. But he also writes this because this affects how you relate to God. Do you approach him by works or do you approach him by grace? Because that means everything, not only in how you live now and how you understand the character of God, but also how you relate to him forever. It's the grounds of our relationship with him and acceptance only comes in one way. And so this is going to require our defaults to be reset. We're going to need our settings reprogrammed from works into grace. And that might seem a little bit unintelligible at first. Maybe you've read stories, uh, maybe you've had this actually experienced, or this happened to you also firsthand, but of the language setting of someone's phone being reset for whatever reason, whether it's a glitch, uh, whether it's a, a toddler who gets a hold of your phone, whatever it happens to be. But I'm not just talking about being reset into some other language than English, but a language with a whole other non-phonetic alphabet. Right? Maybe you could figure out in your settings how to go back and reset it into English uh, if it was set in German or French. But what about Cyrillic? What about Arabic? What about Mandarin? A language where you can't even recognize the letters in an attempt to shift it back. Well, our default changing from works into grace is like that. It seems unintelligible. We don't quite fully understand because grace and the gospel is so foreign to what our basic inclinations tell us. But the answer, though, for us isn't to go back and, re- and change our defaults back into a language that we can comprehend. The answer for us is to learn a new language and to make that be to be our default and to gain a better acquaintance with grace. And that requires a massive shift. And so we're going to look at four shifts which entail this from our text. And the first is a shift in self-perception. In other words, it's how we view ourselves. It's a shift in our self-perception. Verse 2, Paul gives this warning to steer clear from those who want to mingle works with the gospel. And he's referring there to a group who taught that to be a real Christian, to up your spiritual game, to to really approach God, then you had to follow the Old Testament Jewish law. 
Your spirituality had to take on a Jewish flavor as you introduced the old demands. But the church at Philippi wasn't full of Jews. It was a church that was full of Greeks. And so these teachers insisted that then if you really wanted to please God, you had to be circumcised and live like a Jew. There's nothing wrong with circumcision. If you want to eat kosher, that's fine. But why? What's the purpose? Is it to get closer to God? Is it to attain some higher level of spirituality? Again, that's the classic appeal to our works default. And Paul, Mr. Grace himself here, then calls these teachers out and reveals who they really are. He calls them first dogs. That's not a derogatory name that we might think. But it was just a simple Jewish term for a Gentile or someone who lived outside of the typical faith community. He refers to them as evildoers when they were supposed to be instructors of righteousness. And then most graphically, he calls them mutilators. And in reference, if circumcision is the the context here, I think you kind of get the idea there. But the thing is here, in an ironic twist, he has shown their true identity. They're supposed to be teachers of the Jewish law. They're supposed to be these very spiritual people, but they are actually more akin to pagan Gentiles than they are to Jews. Let alone being true followers of God, because they are reverting back to mixing works with grace. They're going back to the works default. And meanwhile, they're living self-deceived lives. They've deceived themselves about who they are. And works require self-deception as a means to cope then with the inevitable despair that we have in our failure. Or if you want to live by the way of works and it requires you to live self-deceived or to have a skewed perception about yourself. To believe that you hit the target far more than you miss and that you're doing okay with your current percentage. Or to misperceive that the target is actually way easier than it actually appears. And because of that then, because I'm doing okay there, at least in my mind, I'm justified. And if that's the case, then I also take on this mindset of superiority as I'm now the standard. I've become enough. And I can then see the deficiencies in everyone else's enoughness or their lack thereof. And so what, what, it's, what do we weigh them against? We weigh everyone else against ourselves, of course, and that implies that we ourselves have it better than everyone else. But the reason, though, that living by works requires this sort of self-deception is because apart from that, your life will be one of despair and despondency. Because if our eyes are open, then we see our failures and we instead live in dejection and insecurity because we realize how much that we have not measured up. I've got nothing. But that's where Paul says it's best for us to be. Because at that honest yet painful point, it forces us to look for a righteousness that goes outside from us and to some other way of finding acceptance. And that points, that brings Paul to, to verse 3. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. This is what it's like to live by grace, to approach God, not by with circumcision of the flesh, not by any sort of of law there, but a heart that is cleansed, a heart that is circumcised by the spirit of God, apart from any influence that you or I could exert. 
to have no confidence in the works that we do and instead making our boast and our glory be Jesus Christ and what he has done. All right, we get to hold him as our confidence. We get to hold him uh, as our perfection. We get to cling to the works of Jesus rather than our own. And this then that means a second shift then is a shift in values, which is seeing our resumes really for what they are and then giving them up for Christ. What is it that we value? It means a shift in values. It's one thing to speak of these things in theory that Paul's talking about, but it's another to individualize it, though, and speak with experience. And this is what Paul does in verse four. He speaks rhetorically. He says, if you think that you have a confidence in what you've done and in your own self, let's take a look at my own resume, because I think you're going to have a hard time finding a more qualified candidate than myself. I grew up naturally as a Jew from a practicing Jewish household. I was circumcised from the very beginning. I'm from a prominent tribe of Israel. I was raised according to the ways of the faith. I come from a position of religious privilege, and I've carried that through all the way into my adulthood as well. I became a Pharisee then. I devoted myself into studying and following after the law. I had so much zeal for it that I was willing to persecute the church. There is no question about my sincerity. I was living faithfully in accordance with to all the law. And Paul says, basically, how many of you can say that? Yeah, not, not a whole lot of people. But as, for val- as valuable as that may have seemed from one perspective, Paul was willing to give it all up because he found something better than the resume that he had. He found Christ. He found what Christ has. He found who Christ is. Right? To be, the best way to be broken of our self-deception is to be shown perfection. To gaze at the real thing. And then we'll begin to notice at that point our own deformities, our own imperfections. And as Paul beheld Jesus and his perfection, he began to realize and recognize the failures and the cracks that he had in his own resume that he brought to the table. And in one sense, Paul did have a solid righteousness until he saw Jesus. And he said, I want that. I got to have that. I need that. I want that perfect righteousness that can only come from God himself That was accomplished by the son, the one who knew all along the depths of the very standard of the law and the one who all along is the only one who could fulfill it. I want the one who would take upon himself on the cross, my old resume, who would cleanse it out and who would then by faith, not by my works, give me what he has. It's a righteousness freely given by Christ. That's through faith. And Paul sees that. He says, that's beautiful. That's wonderful. That's perfection. I've got to have it. I'm willing to set aside my own resume because this is something much better. He doesn't need his own resume. He doesn't need to hold on to those works because he has everything that he could ever possibly need in Christ. And it changes even how he views his own resume. He refers to it, first of all, in this common financial categories that we have of Gain and loss. Or we can think of assets and liabilities. See, on the one hand, on one perspective, he has all the gains. He has those assets which seem to be of value. 
Everything that seemed to pad his resume, those works that he used, he used to count as assets because they seemed valuable. But that's no longer the case. He doesn't see them as assets anymore. He sees them as losses. He sees them as liabilities. Because even that which was damaging to him, because what he thought before would, would be a profit to him and would increase his gains, it actually now works to destroy him. Why? Not only because they're worthless to bring, but because they whisper back to our default of works and they draw us away from beholding Christ in faith. And the more that we look away from Christ, what do we do? We inevitably look back to the resume of works that we have holding in our own hands. And we inevitably just flip through the pages. And the more that we start to thumb through the pages of our resume, we forget the beauty of Christ's perfection. We start thinking that what we have in our own resume, it seems okay. Maybe it's not so bad. And we look through it, and it pulls our thinking away from the categories of grace and faith. And that's why Paul continues by calling his own, his, his old gains, not only, or by calling his, his old resume, not only gains and losses, but he also calls it rubbish. Except rubbish is probably too weak of a word. Because that's really referring to what was known as the, the dung pile that was filled with, with the old moldy table scraps in it. See, if you see the resume that you have in your own hands as manure, what are you going to do? You're going to drop it. It's filthy. And if that's what you try to present before God, you will look pretty silly. In fact, you'll actually be ashamed of what you've brought before him. And this is why this shift requires a wholesale renouncement from our works. Not just an adjustment of life. Not just trying to add Christ into what we already have. It relies on Jesus' righteousness without attempting to contribute anything. And that any scheme then that does otherwise isn't going to be successful. Trying to mix our works with Christ's righteousness, it's like oil and water. They don't mix. Our works and his don't. Or rather, you can, using the words of Paul, you could think of it this way. Rather, the manure of our own works isn't going to blend very nicely with the spotlessness of Jesus. So you can't insist on keeping it pretty well and then let letting jesus come in and fill in all the gaps that you've missed you can't begin with jesus and then cover over or add in your own works later or rely on yourself to finish it or rely on yourself to give you security or to work to stay in his favor none of that works it's only shoveling your manure on what jesus has done And all of these approaches, though, are still appeal to that same default of works and law. It all brings a righteousness of your own doing to the table. And when we do that, we're actually pulling away from the beauty of what Jesus has. Is there really anything that you think you can do to add to that? Are our views of ourselves and our abilities really that inflated? Because of the perfect righteousness of Jesus, you will never be more loved or less loved. You will never be more loved or less accepted by God than that moment in which you first believed. Because you have everything in that moment in Jesus. And there is no way that God could possibly look at you more wonderfully or less. Because he looks at you with the perfect spotlessness of Jesus. He looks at you as he looks at his very son. 
So the call for us is to receive and to rest in Christ and to find freedom from our burdens by coming to him. But the third shift that we have here is a shift in motives. It's living to know Christ. It's a shift in our motives. Paul is obviously thrilled with the righteousness of Christ that's given to him by faith. But he's enamored, really enamored, not with just with the saving benefits that come from Christ, but with Christ himself. In verse 8, he says, I count everything as lost for the sake of knowing Christ. Verse 10, it says that I may know him. The real value is in Jesus himself. It's not just what he can do for you, but in knowing him as a person. And to those of you who are married here, what's the real value in your spouse? Why did you get married? Is it, was it in your spouse as a person? Having them as, as the whole person and getting to know them? Or is it just in the benefits of being married? Tax breaks, having a partner in life, whatever else it is. I hope you'd say the value is in the person. And same for us here. The value is in knowing and having Jesus himself, not just merely being given his credit and having his blood of the the cross atoned for your sins. But it's in knowing his self-giving character as he went to the cross for you. It's in knowing his humility and his love. It's in uh, understanding his mercy for undeserving sinners. It's in experiencing the power of his life in close union with him. It's his having his, his love of giving gifts to us. It's his beauty. See, the, the, the gospel is no less than the forgiveness of our sins. It's also so much more because you gain Jesus. You have the privilege of knowing him closer than a friend or a brother. It's what Paul refers to as being in him. And he walks alongside you in life. You get to know who he is, not from afar, but in union with him through the joys and the sorrows of life. And when Paul writes of Jesus here, there's this true affection that he has in his words. Because he's not driven endlessly uh, to, to keep in a proper relationship by following the law, but he's free to pursue after Christ And to know him as the motivating principle in life. Amazingly, in all of Paul's writings, and Paul talks about Jesus a lot. There's only one place where he uses the phrase, Christ Jesus, my Lord. He'll often write Christ Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ. But only once with that sort of affection of Christ Jesus, my Lord. And he writes it right here in chapter 3. Verse 8 of Philippians. If you know Jesus, how well do you know him? How acquainted are you with his person? See, for Paul, the wonder and the joy of knowing and of gaining Jesus has just begun here. And it transforms his life. He gets to know Jesus in his resurrection state for eternity. He's actually getting to see him and behold him and be with him forever. But that's not just some far off ideal. It has very real effects for us right now. He gets to know Jesus' power to resurrect us from life uh, or to to death or to, to life from death and into newness. There's real transformation that he has for us. He gets to know Jesus through sharing in his sufferings. 
And that might be rather daunting for us as we think about that. But sharing his sufferings, as we do that, we learn more about the one who suffered and died for us in his place. And we realize also that if we share in his sufferings, we are never suffering alone. But that he's with us. And that he knows what it's like to suffer. And that he will never leave us. And through those sufferings that we share with him, he uses them to make us more and more like him as the one who was ever faithful and who was ever obedient, even to the point of his death. See, none of this here, as we receive from Jesus, is a passive life. Even though we are given everything here, we are given Jesus himself even, and we're given everything by faith, there's still an active pressing in to God that we have, a pressing forward in how we live. But this shift in motive that we have here makes all the difference. It's no longer by works, but it's by faith. It's love. It's done out of a love of God and for Jesus Christ, precisely because he has given us Jesus Christ. Paul has tasted of his kindness, and he wants more. He must know him. There are two motives that you can base your life around. You can base your life around guilt or love. And both of those are powerful. But love has the longevity to go the long haul because it never tires or it's never burdened. If you try to live according to guilt, you'll just end up burnt out. When you shift your motives away from trying to gain him by works or to maintain your relationship with him by works... Uh, rather than ongoing faith and an ongoing reliance upon faith and his grace, and you center it now upon love for him, you will find so much freedom. And you will, it will allow you then to live a life of rejoicing. And last of all, though, the last shift that we have here is a shift in culture. Uh, it's learning and continuing to be shaped by this. How, a shift in our culture. Uh, Back to the beginning here in verse 1. Paul says, To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Paul's not writing anything new. He continues to write the same thing to them again and again, over and over. Christ, faith, his righteousness and not our works. And we may think that that might get old. Or just some rote idea. Or doesn't he have anything else to say or anything better to say? Paul doesn't think so. He says, I don't see it as a burden. It doesn't become wearisome to me. In fact, he says it's safe for them. He recognizes that it's in their best interest to write this same thing over and over to them. And the reason why he writes it over and over and sees it as being safe for them is because he knows the reliance, or he knows uh, how we want to go back into our default of relying on works. And sometimes it's because we're obstinate people and because we want to cling to whatever we can. But sometimes it's just simply because we forget. It's not intentional. We just forget sometimes. And we slide back into that works paradigm. And Paul knows, though, the tendencies of his readers. He knows that we're no different, that we too need to hear over and over Christ for sinners and the paradigm of grace and faith over and over again, because it's also in our best interests. If we truly want to be Christ-centered, gospel-driven people, then we need the gospel. We need Christ Jesus given 
to us over and over again. Every aspect of our being needs to be touched by this gospel. We all have areas in our lives that are slowly being transformed by grace. There are darkened corners of our hearts that still need to be gripped by the reality of Christ for us and have his light shone into that darkened area. The thing is, without hearing that consistently and constantly, without, without being given him over and over, those areas will lay as they are. And so that means being steeped in Christ for who he is, to soak him up into our soul so that we can become uh, like he is and that he then would, would infiltrate every aspect of our being. See, learning the gospel is like learning a new culture. You can't truly know a culture or you can't truly be at home in it by just dipping your toe in here or there. Learning a culture requires immersion, getting into it and totally immersing yourself into it until it becomes second nature. It means taking on a whole new mindset, just like cultural immersion. It changes the, way, the categories in which you think and view the world. What do they say about you really know a new language when you can actually start dreaming in that language, right? And none of it's easy either, though, right? Because the ideas of grace and receiving by faith are so foreign to our default of works. They're antithetical to each other. And so learning them, taking them on and taking them into us, it can take a long time, just like learning a new culture does. And there can even be frustrations that we have in the process as we slowly take on a new set of values and, that we, and then learn how to live with them. It means picking up a new language. It means engaging in new customs and new cultural rituals. It challenges our deeply held beliefs and our assumptions that we have. But we'll find, though, over time, as we soak and as we immerse ourselves in it, that it sinks into us. We begin to think and to speak in these new ways, even unconsciously. So that in any given moment when we react or when we speak into a situation, what comes out first? Are our words tinged with grace? Is our first reaction one that's characterized by knowing grace and not self-righteousness? That takes time. And we're all at various stages along the process. But it begins, though, with immersing ourselves deeply in Christ Jesus. And as it begins with him, it also continues with him. Continuing along the process of being shaped by Jesus and his gospel, it means always being brought back to him. Right? Paul's words in verse 1 here, it's not troublesome to me, he says. It's not troublesome, it's not wearying to always bring the same things. It wasn't to Paul, I know it's not to your pastor, I know it's not troublesome to your elders. So no matter your, your understanding of the faith, no matter your stage in understanding the faith, whether it's new to you, whether you're questioning who Jesus is, or you're, if you're just beginning even to get acquainted with, with Christianity, no matter how long it is that you've been walking with Jesus, the answer is still the same. All of our needs are alike. To be given Christ Jesus who lived, who died, and who rose again for lost and sinful people just like myself and just like you. We all need the waters of refreshing the waters of Jesus Christ over and over. And each week we need them. Hearing Christ, receiving Christ, 
as we will do so tangibly here at the table very soon. As we celebrate uh, the, the, the Lord's table in just a few moments here, this is where the Lord Jesus Christ feeds us, where he nourishes us with his very body and blood. He binds himself to us by his spirit in the bread and cup. We receive him, we take him in, and he imparts his very life to us to strengthen us in our faith, to renew his promises to us just as surely as we can hold on to them and just as surely as we can smell the the smells from from the, the cup, taste the bread. He gives us the emblems of his love that are just as tangible as that we can hold on to. So it's not a burden for us to come over and over, to come again and again back to Jesus Christ. It's life. It's joy. And so let's pray and let's prepare our hearts as we will soon come to his table. Lord God, you know us all too well. And you know that our common appeal that we have over and over, whether we intentionally try to or not, is by looking at our resume or holding up something that we've done. And Lord, we pray that that you would show us again the folly of that, that you would just smile at us, point out again how cobbled together our own works and righteousness and ways of self-justification are and that you'd you'd once again point our eyes to the beauty of Jesus and give us a, a deep longing for him. We thank you that over and over, week after week, we have him that's spoken to us. We have him that's given to us so that we can more and more be like him and, and live a life uh, devoted to you out of love and not out of, out of guilt. One that is motivated by the grace that you have given us and the gratitude that we have for that. And we pray that you would increase our love and our affections for Jesus, not just to what he gives to us, but for Jesus Christ in his whole person and to know him in this. And so as we pray that you would prepare us, prepare our hearts, as in a few moments we come to the table of the Lord Jesus where he invites us. We pray this in his name. Amen.